If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. I have a question for you. Do you really know how old your patient is? You may actually be wrong about it. You have all the January 1st people, right? And so what we always tell people, you go to the Asian agencies, they know what happened with all the wars. You don't have to explain to everybody what happened and make it look like you're a bad person for lying. It's because it's messed up in terms of immigration and history. So my mom, she had to claim 1939 birth, even though she was born in 35. And again, the difference of four years is tremendous the older you get. And that's something I think healthcare people ought to recognize. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. Welcome to season one, where we talk about the history and culture of immigrant communities. We're going to start off this three-part series on the Chinese-American community by talking about history. You may start listening to this episode and ask yourself, is this the right podcast? Is this about healthcare or is this just history? The thing is, I'm not a big fan of history because all I remember about history is my AP history class where I had to memorize all these dates of events of a lot of white men doing things. But I spend a lot of time being a historian during my day. When patients show up in my clinic, the first thing that I talk about is the history of present illness. And if you're a clinician, that's probably the first thing you learned when you got into medical school. But for others listening, the idea is to understand what happened that led to the illness or the pain that you're experiencing. Tell me about your ankle pain. How did it happen? What did you try? What has worked? But the other important part to know is we really, really just want to know the history of the present illness, the ankle pain. Not that you were at a birthday party when it happened, not who you were with when it happened, not why this birthday party was so important to you because it's the first one since COVID. We just ask about the body system. And I think that sometimes it's the downfall of healthcare because we miss out on learning about the person and we almost never think about learning about the history of the community. But I want to propose to you that it's just as important to understand the history of the community because that's the source of their values and beliefs. And that's where you'll understand the events that cause them trauma and learn about the things that give them hope. And those are the things that we really need to know to care for the person when they show up to you vulnerable, broken, in pain. Because you can't help them heal 
if you don't think about all of those things. I'm thrilled to have Connie So, a professor at the University of Washington, to join me today to talk about the history of the Chinese American community. And just like me, after this episode, you're going to become fluent in talking about Toisanese, Gongshao, and Cantonese, and you're going to understand what all those words mean, and it's going to make you a better healer, friend, and neighbor. Here's Connie. Hi, Connie. Welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. How did you end up in Washington State, and what are you up to these days? I'm Connie So, and I'm actually an immigrant from Hong Kong. My family has been in America since the 1850s, if not 1849. And um, it was a stowaway from southern China, Toisan, toward Hong Kong, into the United States. And we actually end up finding some gold. So we've been here for a very long time, but we've always been separated because of immigration laws in the United States. So we all came over as immigrants. And so I think our story is very typical in many ways for the southern Chinese diaspora, which is the big diaspora out of China. So I was only able to come to America and start having a second generation because of the 1965 Immigration Act. But my mom's side of family from Toisan has been in America, as I said, back to 1849. In fact, my great-great-grandfather was one of the first men hired at Angel Island Detention Center for Asian people over in California. My grandfather was one of the first men hired for the United States Military Police, so it was just formed. And then what do you do now? Oh, I'm a teaching professor at the University of Washington, and I'm actually at my alma mater. So I went to the University of Washington undergrad, and I went to Princeton for my master's in public affairs, and then my PhD at UC Berkeley. And my goal was always to come back to Seattle to teach, and I've been here for 34 years. <laughs> so I, I love people who are living their dreams. So let's start with, I know this is going to be kind of a big topic, but we'll try to break it down in a way that people can digest it. And one way or another, we can talk about it intelligibly. So in China, I think we should talk about just the diversity of what it means to be Chinese. And I have some statistics here. So I'm just going to say some facts and you can expound on it. Is that in China, Han Chinese constitutes for 95% of the nation's population and the remaining 5% mm-hmm. are made up of 55 other ethnic groups. Here's the thing. There is no such thing really as a Han Chinese and uh, Yud Chinese and all these, because it's a conglomeration of a lot of people who intermarry together. So as a Cantonese person, we don't actually call ourselves Han Chinese, although in China itself, we are considered to be Han Chinese. The people we are closer to is actually the, the Yud, as you say in Cantonese. We actually see ourselves as part of the Yud people, but the Yud people intermarry with some of the Han people. And so again, in China, it's a conglomeration of a lot of different tribes. I would say that in terms of a lot of the other groups, there are more than 55, but there are 55 who are recognized by China. So some of the groups like the Hmong and the Mian, who we see as Lao group, the Hmong are actually older group than the Han Chinese are. And the Mian are a pretty old group too, but they've all been put together in America as well as China as part of the Yao people. So what I would say is, this is the thing about ethnicity, if we talk about the cultural group you belong to. It could be very narrow. It could be very broad. We can even call it a larger national group like Chinese. But yeah, Han Chinese are largest. But again, Han Chinese is just the people who accepted a certain language and went along with certain philosophies. And that includes a lot of different people. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. That's why I'm talking to you, not just reading about it. Okay. There are seven major groups of Chinese dialects. So there's Mandarin, Cantonese, 
but also Hakka and a few other languages. And Mandarin is the largest dialect group uh, that many Chinese speak. So it's an interesting thing. And the tones are really different. We sometimes say that Cantonese and Mandarin are more different than Italian and Spanish. But people just don't know that. When I was young, I could understand Hakka. Now that I'm older, because I don't talk to as many Hakka people as I used to, I don't understand it quite as well. Because of all the different ethnic groups in China, there's a lot of regional differences, even the language differences. Yeah, and do you feel like one group has immigrated to Washington State or the U.S. more than other? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Even to now, the majority of Chinese in America are the people from southern China. So most of the people, if you came between 1849 down to about 1970, you're usually Toisanese or Taishan, as it's called now. And that, that's a kind of rural area of Guangdong province, pretty close to Canton. So a lot of times we don't say Toisanese, we just say Cantonese. The British used to call it, and Americans call it Canton, but it's always been, whether in Cantonese or in Mandarin, it's Gongzhao. So Gongzhao and Canton are the same place. So almost everybody, all the way up to 1970, 75% at least of the people who went to America are from the Guangdong region or Cantonese. But of the Cantonese who came, majority are Toisanese, particularly those who went to the West Coast. And there are three major cities in California that people went to. We call it Dai Fa, Yi Fa, San Fa, meaning the big three. San Francisco being the biggest one. And also, I think it's Stockton and Sacramento, Oakland. Those are the other big ones. But many people, including my family, we started off in the Bay Area. And then we ended up going up to Washington because of the railroad. And then it was the canneries. There are a lot more Mandarins now, but not compared to Cantonese. Cantonese still outnumber Mandarins in the United States. So mostly people coming from Hong Kong, coming from Chinese from Vietnam, Chinese from Cambodia. They're almost all Cantonese. They could be Hakka. They could be Chiu But all of these are people of the Guangdong province. And Canton itself is known as the city of merchants. Shanghai in China is known as the city of corporations. As different Han emperors came, southern China wasn't really part of China. Southern China is always intermarried with lots of folks. There's a lot more mixture. Because I know in my family, we also have Samoan and Tongan ancestry because of the diaspora and how people follow trade. So the land route, the Maritime Sea Silk Route, they both went through Guangzhou after a while. So this is why when you go to many stores around China, Singapore, all these other places, it's the Cantonese. They're almost all Cantonese speakers. I go to Cambodian restaurants and Vietnamese restaurants in Seattle. A lot of it is still Cantonese, Cantonese speakers. I go to Cambodian restaurants and Vietnamese restaurants in Seattle. A lot of it is still Cantonese. I think a lot of people probably know that if you're a part of the Chinese community. I think the reason why is because a lot of the new Chinese from mainland China they tend to talk to a lot more white people because they live in these white areas because of research institutions and so forth. So I think it's well known among the people of the Asian ethnic enclaves. I don't think it's well known among white people. But I don't think white people really know a lot about us in general anyways. And I used to work at the National Committee U.S.-China Relations in New York City back in the 80s. And I would say they didn't know a lot of this either. But for both of us who actually come out of this history, it's pretty well known. I think in China, most people know that the diasporic Chinese are the Cantonese and the Hoking, the people who are from Shaman and went to Taiwan, went to the Philippines, went to Malaysia, and so forth. This is a good time to transition. We can kind of make it a little structured with history. But I think it's important for people to know, as you're doubting, that when we see people, the diaspora, whether it's the Chinese or the Indian diaspora, that's usually a small population of the home country. Like for China, it's a lot of the Cantonese not some of the other areas in China. Let's start with history in that a lot of 
immigrants, Chinese immigrants, came to Washington State around 1850s or so. Would you say that? So people go to San Francisco, like we all know, 1848, the gold was discovered Sutter's Mill, and then it sets off the gold rush and the whole Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo taking away Mexican land. <laughs> By 1849, you have the major gold rush. And a lot of Chinese went there as well. But partly it's also because of the Opium War. The real reason why people had to leave China, the Opium War was really fought in southern China. And actually, Guangdong province is the most populous place on earth. It's actually the nine cities of Canton, which include Hong Kong, Macau, Canton or Guangzhou, Punyi and Toisan and Zhongshan. Anyway, the nine cities there are the most populous place. So even though Guangdong is a small province, it is actually a lot of people in China as well because it's like, very densely populated. And in terms of the diaspora, like, it really is Guangdong province. And the GNP of China is concentrated as well in Guangdong province. But with that said, the reason why people from Guangzhou fighting the Opium War against the British mostly and other people, Britain gets Hong Kong, takes Hong Kong, and they also tax the Chinese 21 million silver dollars to push opium. And so no one can really pay that. And the other thing they also did, they passed this whole rule about how People in Britain and their allies, which include the United States, they didn't have to pay taxes. The only way the Chinese can pay back that 21 million silver dollars, which is mostly for the opium, was by taxing their own people. So the only people who can pay this are the Chinese merchants. And if you can't afford it, you're going to go to nearby places. This is why so many Cantonese went to Vietnam. They went to Cambodia. They went to Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and all these places. It's the poorer Cantonese who are also suffering because the British and all their allies, the biggest presence is still in Guangdong province. So the Toisanis happen to have a drought. And part of the reason why you have famine and drought is because all the fighting took place, always in most countries, in the farmland. So that was destroyed. So the Toisanis then went to Guangzhou to look for jobs. But a lot of Cantonese said the way to look for jobs is really go to Hong Kong because the British took that already. And then you can go to all these other territories of the British because they're looking for laborers. And they're also trying to develop infrastructure in Malaysia, which is why many Chinese go to Singapore and develop that infrastructure. And also Cholong in Vietnam, all the port cities and why you have so many Cantonese. So a few people who are a little more desperate thought they would try for America. And the reason why they did is because by the time it's 1848, then they started hearing about gold. And of course, a lot of people in China don't really like the people who are white. The term we have for white people, you know, white devils and ghosts and everything, because they're pushing opium onto the Chinese people. The key thing is they keep coming over because we have the port of Hong Kong. So that's why everybody, whatever part of China you might have gone to, we think of everyone as a Hong Konger. So less so people from northern China, mostly southern China. Northern so. China, aside from Beijing, people were really poor. That's the main thing is when people say, oh, they're the poor peasants. Here's the thing I want to correct. Again, the Cantonese, we have a saying that the emperor is far and the country is wide. Meaning you could do whatever you want where we're at because we're in the southern part of China. The reason why the Cantonese were seen as really poor is because northern China is much more Confucianist. Southern China is more Taoist. Although overall, everybody in China knows Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism is blended together. But merchants in China at this time were lower class than peasants were. And the reason why is the highest was, of course, the scholars who worked for the emperor. And then it was the farmers. And then the artisans and the merchants were lowest. Because the feeling was merchants work for themselves and they don't work for the emperor. They don't work for anyone else. They're greedy and selfish. Whereas the people who are the scholars and the peasants, farmers who work for the scholars, they still follow the Confucianist order. 
So in Southern China, we never really got into that. And this is why we always say, you don't run for office. You don't run for those things. If someone says they're better than you, we always say, of course, you are. <laughs> because most people in Guangzhou, you don't want to catch the attention of the emperor. That's always been taught to me. And I didn't realize how Taoist that is. But you should always, mediocrity, simplicity is should play. And so there's even a saying in China that if you're a Cantonese person with $100, you act like you only have one. If you're a Shanghainese person with $1, act like you have 100 So we always say that's a northern and southern Chinese split. And that's, again, that's a really well-known saying in China itself. So I think that when it comes to the people coming over, this is why you have the access over in Gaonzhou. The other thing is Cantonese were the business people. And we've always had a silk trade route, maritime one. And a lot of people studying China said China has a distinction of being the only country that does not support their merchants. And this is what actually helps beget all the diaspora and why you have so many Chinese all around the world, because Chinese has sailed in many places. South Africa has a Chinatown from the 15th century, and Philippines has the oldest one at the Perion. So again, a lot of this happened because China was very anti-merchants and being poor. It's not poor economically. In fact, where the wealthiest still are, it's because you're poor in terms of social status. And that does affect the psyche of a lot of Southern Chinese who end up purchasing titles and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So interesting. So the Northern China people were poor in resources and didn't have access to travel out as much. It's not as much. And they also didn't have as much interaction with white people because the Opium War was pretty much in Southern China. And for Northern Chinese, they don't call white people devils and ghosts and all that stuff the way the Cantonese do because they're just foreigners. Why? Whereas for the Cantonese, it doesn't take on the same pejorative connotation that it did historically, but it's because of the Opium War. I have heard that it was the Opium War and also the Taiping Rebellion. Taiping Rebellion comes a bit later. Taiping Rebellion is being fought at the same time that other battles. For example, the Second Opium War, there was also the Hakka Punti War. You also end up having some of the other, you know, Boxer Rebellion, Red Turban, Taiping, they're all out of Guangdong province, all out of Canton. So this is why we're saying we're a pretty rebellious people here. You just had so many different battles. In fact, in Gongzhou, there were every three to five years, there was some battle against foreigners or against each other. So people came for the gold rush. And then I think gold was discovered in Oregon and Washington. No, Suttersville, California first, and then Black Diamond. And to go to Alaska, they had a lot of gold. So Seattle became the last of the frontier, the place you go to, the gateway to Alaska. So a lot of people went to the gold rush for Alaska. They went to Seattle. Seattle then became a big city. Tacoma was supposed to be the big city for Washington, but Seattle ended up overtaking. Tacoma was a city of destiny. Seattle was not supposed to be as important, but we ended up making all these uh, inventions, supposedly, to help people find gold. I love it. Uh, well, you know, I teach history. So. <laughs> yeah. Another point to be so, made is that the first wave of Chinese migrants were almost exclusively men. So... What happened is a lot of women were told that there were jobs and they meet people at the port of Canton or the port of Shanghai. But instead of actually having a job, they were kidnapped. So preceding the laborers to America was the kidnapping, the Shanghaiing of a lot of Chinese women to all these different areas where the British had colonies. And so they actually preceded it. So that's why a lot of people also thought it was dangerous, but it's not uniquely Chinese. A lot of women in America at this time also, we're not supposed to travel around. And since people knew America, yes, it's a beautiful country, Magoff, but it was also the white devil's country. <laughs> so you're not going to let a Chinese woman 
travel by herself there, especially because among the women who were there were a lot of people who were forced into prostitution. It started off with white men kidnapping, and then it became Chinese men as well. Because you know how that always happens as well. They had better labor, and I think a lot of people go through that still. So they came here, partly it was for the gold rush and mining, but also they built railroads. Well, first they came for mining, and then they've had a foreign miners tax against Mexicans that was even more imposed against the Chinese. So they became 98% of your revenue gets taxed in the state of California. And the state of California made a lot of money. And you would continue having to pay this tax unless you carried that little sheet of paper. There's no lamination or anything with you. And if you didn't have the paper, you pay the tax again or else you go to jail. So the foreign miners tax definitely pushed a lot of people out of mining. And then when it came to working on the railroad, people had to pay back the people they borrowed money from. They didn't steal away. They had to pay for the voyage. You had to pay people back. At the time, the East Coast was really paid by the Irish. When you get to the Midwest, we would say it's the Scandinavians. The Swedes and Irish joined up the Scandinavians. But the Rocky Mountains, it was the Chinese. And it was Leland Stanford who was the first to hire the Chinese. He initially didn't think they could do it, but people were desperate for jobs. And it was said, we can do it, even though we come from really tropical places and everything, people are going to prove their might. And they did. They were great railroad builders. And in Seattle, we have Chin Ji He, who was one of the wealthiest men in Washington at this time. Back in 1860, he was part of Kwantuk, and then he started Wasung. And what he did is he employed a lot of people. But the main thing is he ended up pulling the money and all his know-how, and he built a railroad in Toisan. So this is why in China, he's well-known as well. But the key thing is the Chinese ended up do- not only building it, they were engineering. They were doing a lot of things. And in the annals of California, they talked about all these contributions that these guys coming from such a tropical area were able to succeed it. So again, Leland Stanford didn't really think people would be very strong. But they were willing to work for a little less money because they're desperate to pay off their debt. They end up becoming great workers. And this is why the Burlington Railroad ended up being dominated. They all became dominated by the Chinese. Such an interesting backstory. So the people came, things were tough in China, though it's an understatement. Came for mining, then transitioned to helping build railroads. And in the 1870s to 1880s, that's when there was growing resentment toward the Chinese. I think people call it the yellow peril, right? There was already yellow peril sentiment as early as 1849. Yeah. <laughs> they will not want, but the difference is the year of Golden Spike is 1869. It's in May 1869. And this is why we have AANHPI Heritage Month in May as part of commemoration of that. Part of the reason why California and these other places had the Chinese, and there are a lot of books about this. It's because the West Coast states didn't have slavery. And so the Chinese were actually, even in the places they went to, like Cuba and Barbados and Tobago, which have a lot of Chinese people, Fiji and such, these were actually, since England and France outlawed slavery for the U.S. did, Chinese were actually what we call coolie slave laborers. And so it was a substitution for African Americans who are no longer enslaved officially. So the kind of jobs that early Chinese did, migrant work, sticks, and so forth, are a lot of the jobs that African-Americans also have. And this is why we always say it's hard to tell the Chinese story in America without going through Native American, African-Americans, and Latinx people as well. So there was already a lot of dislike. And in fact, they were making up things about the germs and Chinese were being blamed for the OP war. And so there's a lot of that sentiment. But because by 1869, you no longer needed the labor of the Chinese. Starting in 1869, when there's a lot of sentiment, against the Chinese, especially led by the labor union. So the Seattle City Council, the Tacoma City Council, they were all dominated by unions. And Tacoma had a bigger Chinatown than Seattle initially. But they created what was called the Tacoma Method, 
where you round up all the Chinese and you kick them out to another city. So this is why Tacoma still doesn't have it. Anna Cordes, Chinatown disappeared. A lot of Chinatowns throughout the West Coast disappeared. But the Tacoma method only reflected the sentiment puberty had. And so the people who wanted the Chinese in there were the big corporations. And they started experimenting already in Hawaii with the Japanese. And in America, they found the Japanese are pretty good workers. And so the Japanese end up taking over where the Chinese had left off. And so then with the Japanese there, they can go ahead and allow Chinese Exclusion Act, even though the sentiment to kick out Chinese had been there for a long time. And because we had a mini depression in the West Coast, the only jobs they could take were the jobs that white men did not want because everyone was more desperate. And this is why a lot of Chinese men, the guys who built the railroad, ended up becoming houseboys, ended up becoming cooks. And many people say this is what led to a feminine stereotype of Asian men in the United States. And again, as we say, how can people think that if you watch Hollywood movies, you rarely have Asian men, Asian American men in any romantic role. But China has a billion people. India has a billion people. Okay, how could that possibly be? And about not being romantic, I was telling people, that's a Commerce Sutras for India. And Jinping Mei, the whole thing about lotus stems and all that stuff, I said, that's China. I said, how can that be? You know what I mean? It doesn't even make any sense. So that's the reason why in 1882, they finally passed the exclusion law. It was a way to get white people together. So the Irish actually got together with some of the other ethnic Europeans. And this is all part of the labor movement. It's also the time when monopolies were beginning because the East Coast and the West Coast connected together. There's already racism against Chinese. It's just that they became the scapegoat. The Chinese were the people that were thought to be strike breakers, even though the Chinese really weren't strike breakers that much. So just to review that, the railroad was completed and then the depression set in. So then the animosity really picked up, although with the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which prohibited family members of Chinese workers coming to the U.S. Well, if you have enough money and you can create a job for five Americans, you can still come over. Back then, it was like if you had $10,000 to you, you can come over or you're a student. Otherwise, every regular Chinese were not allowed to come over. But they only experimented this for four years. They weren't sure they could do without Chinese labor. But as the Japanese came in and they proved to be pretty good, then they extended it. And then finally, by 1892, it became permanent. And already, of course, America, they already had the 1790 Naturalization Act, which prohibited everyone from becoming a naturalized citizen. But by 1882, Chinese Exclusion Act, all Asian people could not become U.S. citizens. So all this animosity builds up. I know there, you talked about the Tacoma residents being expelled, but I think this is also where Chinese communities built stronger connections to each other, like creation of association, tongs, right? There's always been... Chinatowns and Chinese communities throughout the world. And again, we could go back to the 15th century with Chenghua. So there's always been some communities and people follow their relatives. So the reason why you end up having the Chinatowns, I always got to tell students this. People used to ask me at first at UW, how come Asian people always hang out together? And I said, the real reason why is because white people like to hang out with each other. They exclusively so much create residential covenants, red lines, and everything else. De facto segregation. So that's why the Chinatowns came up. Because initially, Chinese didn't want to compete against each other. But they had to move to the area that white people did not want to be. And again, even to this day, a lot of new immigrants, the only place you could afford are the areas outside the city. So this is why a lot of immigrants of color in particular, we always live in unincorporated areas. This is why Skyway, Federal Way, SeaTac, even Rainier Beach initially, those are all unincorporated areas of the city. 
So in terms of the family association, the Chinese diaspora since long time ago with the whole Cecil network, it's always been there. People move accordingly. And the way Chinese start businesses is because of the family associations, the families that follow one after another. We start business by what we call the rotating credit system, where I don't have a lot of money, but I'm going to find people of my same last name. So my great-grandfather started Wu Family in Seattle. And again, there's Danny Wu and all those guys. So everybody put in $100. It's not a lot of money, but there is 20 of you. That could be quite a bit of money. And so what happens is you can either draw straws or you pay by interest to see who takes the whole book of the money. And so all of us in that group, we all want you to pay it back. Otherwise, we can't use it. That's the way Chinese enterprises began. That's Vietnamese. That's Japanese, the Kenjin Kais. And ours is called Weigun, right? And I know that for my family, even for my wedding, we had to go to the Wu family restaurant because we always got to go with our relatives. Okay. So the next big, I'll say, change is post-World War II immigration after the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. Would you say that's right? Because then the War Bride Act of 1945. It was called the Magnuson Act. And so Warren G. Magnuson, the guy who eventually becomes our U.S. senator, has a big role in that. But part of the reason why the Chinese were also treated better was because, I don't want to go through all this world history, but Japan invades Manchuria. They're condemned by the League of Nations. Japan says everyone's hypocritical. The Lighting Commission condemns them. They joined the Axis power, all that stuff. So Japan invaded Gongzhou. And they also invaded Xiamen and all these areas of southern China. So at that point, China becomes the ally of the United States. And the person in charge at that point was Chiang Kai-shek, who a lot of people in China totally feel is a puppet of the United States. So that was the Republic of China at that time. And so what a lot of people say is during all that time, Chinese who end up getting favored. And this is why when it comes to congressional medals and everything else, when it comes to overturning immigration laws, part of that was in response to what Japan was saying in Asia. So it was Claire Booth Lewis and guys who said, that we got to get rid of Chinese Exclusion Act. We don't really want the Asians there, Chinese coming over, but you can't exclude them. It looks bad. So even when they got rid of Chinese Exclusion Act, they still reduced the number of Chinese people to, I think, 10% of what they were back in 1920. And they allowed the Chinese to actually get naturalization in December of 43. So really, it's more 44. Then people brought back war brides. My grandfather found that even though he served for the World War II as a veteran, he had to remarry my grandmother. It was easier to do that than to come over the other way. So you had to marry within the time China got involved in World War II, as far as the U.S. is concerned, between 1937 to 1945. So my mom was actually born before that. And she and a lot of other women end up having to say that they're born in 37, 38, 39, because you couldn't be born in 35, even though the war in China was actually going on earlier than that. And this is why when it comes to healthcare, that is something that you should know when it comes to the Vietnam War. I'm sure the Afghan war, Persian Gulf Wars, a lot of people, part of it is you have to lie because it, the immigration stuff is just crazy. It's when U.S. recognizes something, even though it might have been happening before. But the other part is sometimes people don't have paperwork, and that's why you have all the January 1st people, right? And so what we always tell people, you go to the Asian agencies, they know what happened with all the wars. You don't have to explain to everybody what happened and make it look like you're a bad person for lying. It's because it's messed up in terms of immigration and history. So my mom, she had to claim 1939 birth, even though she was born in 35. And again, the, the difference of four years is tremendous the older you get. And that's something I think for healthcare people, they, people ought to recognize that. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But post-World War II immigration, 
In 1950s and 60s, I think the Chinese entered fields that were traditionally close to them, too. Medicine, engineering, business, and politics. No, 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 no. America, in 1943, in December 43, gave sanctuary status to 1,000 Hong Kong refugees, as they're called. But these were actually international students from China. Out of that group, three of them ended up winning the Nobel Prize. But these three guys are not normal people. <laughs> these are people who get into China as, from China as international students during a more hostile period. So we have Sung Dao Li, Sammy Ting, and Chen Yangning. We got several people. These are the guys. And after World War II was when African Americans are talking about starting the civil rights movement. So you needed to have somebody that has been historically discriminated against that seemed to be doing well because African Americans are saying white America is institutional racist. They latched onto these guys, the stories of these guys who are international students to make it look like, you know, Chinese people are hardworking and smart. They don't agitate. And that's what they do. Black people that talk too much, blah, blah, blah. Majority of Chinese were still in Chinatown. These were your exceptional Chinese. People win Nobel Prize are exceptional. Okay. And uh, they use those words and exaggerate it, right, to everybody else. And they still continue doing this to this day. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the model minority comes up, right? Yeah. And again, it's everything that's put against African-Americans. And again, we could do a whole thing on that. I, and I always do this every year to show people why the statistics they use are accurate. It's median family income. It's not per capita income. We come from an expensive city. So, of course, our income is a little higher. Our minimum wage is higher. And, of course, the expensive cities, what you should really do is compare Chinese in Seattle with white people in Seattle. That's what, And San Francisco and all that stuff. And they're going to find there's a severe underemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So now we have the migration patterns. I wonder if we can just put on a different lens and you can just give me your thoughts on breaking it out this way, that we're taking care of Chinese Americans, that there's probably different amounts of acculturation, which is that idea of how you live according to the cultural values, either of your home country or of the U.S. And this is arbitrary how we break this down, but I just saw it in a curriculum about just the community here that one, there's the elderly Chinese American immigrants who still have traditional values and hold on to the values of China and how they grew up. And then there's the immigrants of working class and then the bi-acculturated professionals and then the American born Chinese Americans. What do you think about that right there? I would say that I talk about classes and this is my experience growing up as a Chinese-American in Seattle. We think it depends more on whether you come from ethnic enclaves or you come from white community. We feel that a lot of people say old immigrants and they come out very old country. What we say is it depends. There are the old immigrants, especially the ones around Chinatown, but we think that all immigrants, especially the people who come over after 65, they all have assimilationist tendencies. If they didn't have assimilation, and assimilation we mean white Anglo-conformist, if they didn't have that Anglo-conformist mentality, they probably wouldn't come to America in the first place. But when you live in the ethnic enclaves, like the Chinatowns, like the Beacon Hill, which is actually the largest Asian-American enclave in the Seattle area. In fact, throughout the 1990s, 2000, more Asians live in Beacon Hill than the entire city of Bellevue. So that's how you know, great it is. But when you live in the Asian enclaves, there's actually much more of a movement to become acculturated and proud of being Asian-American, no hyphen. So this is the thing we always say, for the ethnic enclaves, we don't hyphenate. Because we know hyphen means that you're equally knowledgeable about being Asian and American. Asia's a big continent. Even about Chinese-American, it's hard to know about China when you grow in America. 
more of what you know is what your teachers have told you. So part of the dilemma a lot of students feel is that when they go to school, well-intentioned and not so well-intentioned teachers tell them pretty much negative things about being Asian, backward things about being Asian, and they don't talk about United States the same way. So a lot of Asian parents mistakenly tell them to obey their teachers. That's the best way to do well. They don't realize a lot of times stuff that the teachers tell them is totally contrary to what it means to be Asian for a lot of people. So for example, for many Asian and other people of color, we live with our families intergenerationally. However, in America, they call you stunted if you don't move out by the time you're 18. They also tell you that in terms of food, that it's unhealthy to eat rice all the time, white rice. Look, we've been eating white, white rice for a long time. We live longer. I'm just going to put it right there, right? But there's a lot of little differences about medical treatment and so forth. So what we say is this, that when you come to the ethnic enclave, we may even go through the whole assimilation agenda. But when you come to the enclaves and there's people who have gone through things before you, they help you out with identity issues. And so you end up usually not being as ashamed about being Asian American. And you may identify too with a lot more African American movements. So we're all acculturated because there's a lot of different acculturation. But what happens is for the newer Asians who come over, especially as international students, they talk to a lot of white people who tell them negative things about ethnic enclaves. So they always end up putting down the Chinatowns, the Beacon Hills, and everything else. What it is that I think a lot of the parents who live on the east side, who live on the north side and these other areas, they tell their kids to be proud of being Asian, but the kids say they don't really need it. That what they always use as measurement of their success is a lot of white people. And that's because they listen to a lot of white people, because most universities are predominantly white, who tell them to ignore all these places. And that they're closer to whiteness than blackness than brownness and everything else. In fact, they're closer to whiteness than they are to other Asians. I would say that among the kids, I always tell the kids, you're not caught between being Asian and being American. You're really caught between what your teachers tell you and what your parents tell you. And that a lot of people go through that dilemma. But I say, if you're a loud person, what are you, Chinese or are you white? If you listen to them, all of Asia acts exactly the same way, even though we're most of the earth. And I tell them, when you buy that kind of garbage, even though they may not mean it that way, when you buy that kind of garbage, this is why a lot of us may think that you're pretty much a coconut, a banana, a Twinkie, whatever pejorative term you want to put about that, about people who are acting too white. So what I see a lot of times in my regular classes is Asian Americans who may even think they're being Asian, but they bought into what has been taught to them about Asia, and they're not encouraged to critically critique what it is their teachers have taught them. Whereas I think that when you're in an ethnic enclave, that may still happen, but you have more venues, more avenue to be able to critique these things. You can talk to other people who encourage you to question this. And I think, again, this is why we say that a lot of the, the traditional Asian American leaders of Seattle, they end up coming from the Chinatown, the Korea towns, the Manila towns. That makes sense. So last segment, I think we're going to transition to caring for the Chinese community. We'll go into... There's different beliefs around health and what healthcare providers or clinicians to know caring for this community. I would, I'll give you an anecdotal story first. One of my good friends, she was head of the Women's Healthcare Center at UW. And she's from Hong Kong. And we've been friends since undergrad. But her grandmother from Hong Kong was ill. She had cancer. So she came up to UW to get treated. They told her she has half a year to live, maybe a year at the most. But I told her, why don't you try other people? A lot of people I know have tried Chinese acupuncture and herbalists and everybody else. I said, can't hurt you. She's going to die. My friend went back to Hong Kong with her grandmother. And that was back in 2006. She went back. Her grandmother is still alive. 
she's still doing well. But my friend decided to leave UW, go to University of Hong Kong, and to learn East Asian medicine. She's still in Hong Kong a lot of times. She has joined appointment, but she did it because, as she said, a lot of what they tell you in the West doesn't seem to work. Her grandmother is still doing very well, still alive. She's an old lady, but they would have killed her had they done what they wanted to do for her. Whereas she just went herbal and she did well. And again, you see this in the movie, The Farewell. The same thing, true story. They did much better. Okay, I do a lot of study abroad to Hong Kong before the pandemic. My assistant is Filipino with a little bit of Chinese. Like a lot of people have that. He hurt his sciatica and they wanted to operate on him. They gave him morphine. They gave him all the stuff at UW to treat him. And they're about to operate. I told him, well, don't do it. I said, I just have this real aversion to that. I said, why don't you go to acupuncturist? It can't hurt you. And my mom was an acupuncturist back in Hong Kong too. He went to acupuncturist. She looked at his tongue because that's the first thing you do about what you ate. And then she clipped his ear and bled it. And then he was using crutches. Now, I always tell people, that to me is the most amazing story. One I can eyewitness. And then after that, he continued going to acupuncturist. A month later, he went with me to the China study abroad, and he played basketball against the kids at Shaman University. So I think a lot of people just have a different feeling about it, that Western medicine is far too intrusive, that what is wrong with using herbal? And I'll give you one that I think a lot of professional Asians I know have gone through, including me, my siblings, and a lot of my friends at UW Medical and such, they all have what we're calling type C diabetes. This is when you have type 2 diabetes, but you're skinny, but you don't have the things that usually go with being a type 2 diabetic. And what I noticed about all of them, and I started talking to my friends at ICHS, International Community Health Services, what we noticed is how come it's always the professional Asian Americans have been here longer? It's the Japanese, it's the Chinese, the Asian Indians, and the Filipinos. So my daughter and my son, they play a lot of sports. So I thought, okay, I can always tell me healthier. So I started eating a lot of salad, a lot more than normally because you had to have something fast. Suddenly I was told, so I'm borderline for type 2 diabetes, like all my friends, because my yoga friends, my health, my friends who bike around, they all have it. And I thought, oh, no, I'm becoming what I teach. So I decided I'm going to eat the total Chinese diet. I had roast pork the day before, the lechon one. I had all that stuff. She told me, what did you do? You really improved. I decided, experimenting only on myself, I totally went with the Chinese diet. Because if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down with food I like. I talked to my friends at ICHS, the people who run, and I told them what I did. And they said they're fighting in their studies about diabetes among Japanese and Asian Indians and Chinese and Filipinos, the more established Asian groups. is that you don't get the type C diabetes, as we're calling it, if you totally eat Asian food or you totally eat white food. It's something about the combination in between that they don't know what it is that makes people get the diabetes. And we're saying that only the wealthier Asians are the ones who eat both white food and Asian food. And I was told by this, my friend Ron Chu, that they don't know what the combination is exactly, like 30%, 40%, but they know that the people who are having these type C diabetes, including almost all my siblings now, who are professional Asian Americans. And that's why I'm saying, I think among the Asian American community, we have this feeling about a lot of medicine that other people do not. We also see that diet definitely plays a role. A lot of kids I know, a lot of Asian Americans I know, and kids, college students, younger, they're getting ulcerative colitis and all these gastrointestinal issues that people didn't really have back in China, Hong Kong, India, but they didn't have it 20 years ago. But last five years, they're getting a lot more because these countries have become more developed, wealthier, and I partly, I think, they need more of the Western diet. So I would say that a lot of Asian Americans, regardless of how long they've been in America, 
they were starting to look into other methods. However, the ones who are very assimilated, who don't talk to other Asians, they don't know that this is something you might consider doing. I think the bigger one is still how we treat the mental health issues, how we treat a lot of these other things. So a lot of people in Asia, less so now than what it used to be, they're not really about treating mental illness. So you have to get out of that stigma. But I think a lot more people became aware of that because of COVID, just how bad it can get. And I think because Asians do live longer in general, overall as a group back in Asia and also in America, I think that Alzheimer's and how to deal with Alzheimer's. And you know, Asian Americans, a lot of us, we don't believe in nursing homes because we think that's elderly abuse. But there is becoming a generational gap. Going back to what you said about the more acculturated and the immigrant Asians, where a lot of the grandkids seem to be bullying the grandparents. And we really see that a lot, especially in the wider communities, the Asians from white communities, because they're ashamed of any reminders about being Asian. There's some of that in enclaves, but more so the newer ones that are emerging, not in the more established ones. Because I think, you know, the Asian Counseling Referral Services and International Community Health Service, they're right there. It's taking us like 50, 70 years to figure this out, but we still are servicing a lot of people. Okay, last question. Any other final <laughs> thoughts about just taking care of the Chinese American community or maybe a doctor that did it especially well for you, maybe integrated Western medicine and traditional medicine? I think a lot of doctors are becoming much more aware of this. I think ever since the publication of the book, The Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down about the Hmong family, I think it's become hard reading for ethics classes. But I remember I used that book when it first came out because I thought it really captured what a lot of us think. I remember one of my sisters was really ill, and they had no way curing her. And she actually had anorexia nervosa. This is back in the 70s when people didn't know what the disease was. But my grandmother, she started chanting things and doing a lot of shamanistic stuff. I kept thinking, I wonder if her work, because she was losing so much weight. That, and again, we know it's a little bit mental illness, but people didn't know that stuff back then. But for whatever reason, she actually did get cured. But whatever it is my grandmother guys did, and I think of all the herbal medicine I had since I was young, I don't know, it worked. And nowadays, when I found pediatricians, my kids, I only wanted pediatricians who were open-minded about Asian type of medicine. And even when it comes to dermatology, my dermatologist is Asian-American. She's from Singapore. We always talk about the Asian-American kind of things we go through. And even though my doctor is not Asian-American, one of them retired and later on another person, I still found you can find open-minded people. For my mom, I definitely wanted her to have my friend, the one who went back to U Hong Kong. She was her doctor because she would know what to do, how to cure her, like tiger bomb and cupping. And a lot of that stuff we do as Asian Americans anyways, the doctors who we went to don't mind. And this is before Michael Phelps popularized it. We've been doing this for a very long time, the whole acupuncture. And I prefer the people who are from China. My daughter had some knees problems and no one could fix it. They're going to have to surgery. And I said, no, I don't believe in surgery unless you have to. We went to the acupuncturist. A few needles here and there, and it was a much, much better. I had an ankle problem for a year and a half. I went to all these UW places. Because I'm a UW faculty member, right? No one. I just thought, okay, I'm going to go to the acupuncturist a month and a half, and treatment twice a week. I don't have an ankle problem anymore. Honey, I feel like we should advocate for universal acupuncture coverage. It doesn't work for everybody, but it worked for me. And I don't care. Acupuncture is not expensive. I feel like I have coverage. But the main thing is, it's very relaxing. You have the music, you're lying there, and you feel a lot better afterwards. So I think half of it working and not working is your ability to trust as well. And that goes with, I think, even Western doctors. You have to trust your Western doctor. Yeah. Well, thank you, Connie, for spending this time with me. Such a pleasure. 
thank you for joining us on another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. And if you like this episode, share it one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org and sign up to join our community. See you soon. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.